The meaning behind first horror film is elastic and depends on how one defines the genre. Arguably, George Méliès' 1896 short film The House of the Devil deserves the label. Uh, the lost 1908 adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde might be the first horror film with a narrative arc. The 1910 Frankenstein film produced by Edison Studios is another important progenitor, although the macabre elements of the source novel were downplayed in favor of its fantastical and psychological elements. In a previous episode of the show covered 1911's Inferno, the first feature-length horror movie, and the second feature-length movie overall. Despite several decades' worth of predecessors, some will contend that 1920's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the first true horror movie. That can play into the Scotsman's fallacy, but it does make some sense to start an overview about the history of horror movies with this film. Horror was not a distinct film genre until Caligari came out. Its innovations, many of which occurred due to the movie's tiny budget, had a lasting impact on how movies were produced. One could say that every horror film made after Caligari has a bit of its DNA in their celluloid. Plus, the profile pic for this podcast is an image of Caesar from this film, so I had to cover it eventually. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Joining me for this is my sister Cheryl and her husband Pete. Hi! Pete hosts a horror movie podcast. Feel free to plug it. You've plugged it before, but yeah, why not? Do it again. Fearless Films with my best friend Kevin, where he's too scared to watch horror films, so I explain them to him, and he mocks them. That about sums it up. However, uh, you usually focus on post-Haze Codes horror movies. This is a little outside your wheelhouse. This is why I kind of wanted you to uh, bring in, because it's, you know, stomping grounds that you're familiar with, but to the left, in a thicket you don't cover as often. Yeah, I think it'd be really weird describing a silent film to him my co-host and just be like so then some stuff happens quietly there's music saxophone just gets really into it <laughs> yeah we watched a version of uh, caligari that was uploaded to youtube that um god they credited a composer at the end but he really wants to be john zorn <laughs> uh before we get started anything you'd like to throw in about caligari cheryl um, it has given me no appreciation. Oh, right, yeah, because when we did an episode on that, there was one scene where they're introducing Captain Beef, and he emerges from the coffin just like Caesar does. It's true, and the whole time I was like, oh, wow, it's like that David Bowie music video. And now I'm like, oh, there's level. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, do the plot recap. Uh, the story opens with a framing device in which our protagonist, Francis, sits next to an old man on a bench. The old man complains about spirits who drove him away from his family and home. This is not followed up upon because Francis is a little self-centered. A dazed woman named Jane wanders by, prompting Francis to comment that she is his fiancée and they have suffered a great ordeal together. Even worse than the old man's ordeal. Although, once again, he didn't actually ask the old man about it, so he doesn't know. We then flash back to Holstenwall, a shadow-drenched village with twisted, unreal buildings and winding streets that go to nowhere. We'll be talking more about the set dressing for Caligari later. Francis, along with his friend Alan, put aside their good-natured competition for Jane's affections to attend the town fair. Meanwhile, the mysterious Dr. Caligari is seeking a permit to present a spectacle at the fair. The star attraction will be Caesar, a sleepwalker who can perform amazing feats while unconscious. The clerk mocks Caligari but grants the permit. And that night, the clerk is stabbed to death in bed. I honestly didn't know he was stabbed to death. I didn't see the next to my body. He was just getting punched. It's in silhouettes. <laughs> Uh, the next morning, Francis and Alan attend Caligari's sideshow. Caesar is brought out on stage in a coffin and is tasked with telling fortunes after being brought from his slumber. Despite Francis's protest, Alan asks Caesar how long he has to live. 
He is horrified when Caesar forecasts an early death. That night, a figure breaks into Alan's home and murders him. It's Caesar, but it's, you know, supposed to be a mystery right now. Grease-stricken, Francis and Jane petition the influential Dr. Olson to investigate Caligari. Later, the police apprehend a criminal attempting to stab an elderly woman. While being interrogated by Francis and Dr. Olson, the perp confesses to trying to kill the woman but denies any part in the other killings, claiming to be an attempt to take advantage of the situation in order to divert blame from himself. Francis spies on Caligari that night and sees Caesar in his box the whole time. However, that figure is a dummy, and Caesar is actually sneaking into Jane's house. He raises his knife to stab her, which Cheryl didn't notice because it's in silhouette, but <laughs> instead kidnaps her after a struggle. He's spotted dragging Jane out the window and onto the street. An angry mob pursues Caesar, causing him to drop Jane before he collapses and dies, attempting to escape pursuit. Being he's constantly asleep, it's apparently too much pressure on his heart. Francis confirms that the apprehended criminal is still in his cell. He and the police then investigate Caligari's show and discover the Caesar dummy. Caligari manages to slip away, but Francis follows him to an insane asylum. He is shocked to discover that Caligari is none other than the director of the asylum, who somehow doesn't recognize Francis. <laughs> With help from the asylum staff, Francis gains access to the director's personal effects while he's asleep. He learns that the director is obsessed with an 11th century monk named Caligari, who used a sleepwalker to commit murders in northern Italy due to uh, hypnosis. The director experimented on one of his own patients to become Caligari and recreate the killings. This revelation spurs Francis to summon the police, who confront the director with Caesar's corpse. They just flop it out right in front of him. This drives the director off the deep end, and his staff wraps him up in a straitjacket and throws him in a room, and he becomes a patient in his own hospital. The narrative returns to the present, where it is revealed that Francis himself is an asylum patient suffering from vivid hallucinations. Jane and Caesar are also patients, and Caligari is the asylum director. Francis attacks the director on sight and is soon restrained in a straitjacket. The film concludes with the director stating that, now that he understands Francis's delusions, he is confident that he can help him. And that's the film. Or uh, before I delve into the development of this film specifically, I thought it would be interesting to give you a hopefully concise backdrop of the uh, historical context in which Caligari was made in. Vladimir Lenin was the first world leader to realize that the nascent medium of film had tremendous potential for propaganda purposes, but it didn't take long for others to follow suit. During World War I, the German government consolidated most of its film studios under state control. The resulting company was called the Universum Film AG, or UFA for short. The AG also is an acronym, but it is a long German word that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Thinking that movies were invaluable in the realm of psychological warfare, UFA was well-funded throughout the war. As a result, for a good number of years in the 20s, Germany's film industry was one of the only real competitors to Hollywood. However, one of the few studios independent of UFA was Dekla, who did not have much in the way of resources. This led to a number of creative decisions that distinguished Caligari from its contemporaries. That explains why Mussolini and Lorraine is the I think that was meant to be a uh, spin on Greta Garbo, who was Swedish, but, you know, close enough. Oh, she was supposed to be Swedish? Um, okay. Well, Garbo, throughout her career, basically played any Eastern or Northern European woman who was supposed to be exotically beautiful. Sometimes she was Russian, sometimes she was German, sometimes she's actually Swedish. Oh, good to know. 
Uh, the development. Uh, Caligari was written by Hans Janowicz and Karl Mayer, both of whom were pacifists by the end of World War One. Janowicz was an officer embittered with the military. Mayer feigned mental illness to evade the draft, leading to an, an intense and humiliating examination by military psychiatrists, which had a lasting effect on his psyche. It is not hard to draw parallels between that fact and the content of this film. Penniless, Yanowitz and Mayer were encouraged to write a film by the actress Gilda Lager. The Jane character is based upon her and was written with her in mind. One inspiration for the film was a circus sideshow in which a hypnotized man committed feats of strength. Yanowitz also experienced a woman disappearing into some bushes only to see a shifty, well-dressed man emerge later on. He learned afterwards that the woman was murdered and thought that the shifty, well-dressed man was the killer. Yeah, it gave him nightmares, and he's like, well, I can channel that into my writing. Yanowitz and Mayer wanted to write a story depicting major authority figures as arbitrary, brutal, selfish, and insane. Or at least they said so after the fact. Set dresser uh, Herman Worm uh, later claimed that nobody associated with the film had intended to make a sociopolitical statement while they were uh, working on the film. But decades later, after critical appraisal, Yanowitz was like, yes, that's what I had in mind. I am a smart, clever man, and this is all symbolic. Uh, I call that the Kevin Smith defense. Whenever people say, oh, you film clerks in black and white because it's like the security camera footage. Yes, I did. I certainly did. <laughs> Caligari's physical appearance is modeled after the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, although Cheryl said he resembles Danny DeVito, which I can see. Yanowitz claimed that the name came from a rare book entitled The Unknown Letters of Stendhal, but he possibly fabricated this. Uh, one thing that kept coming out to me when I was reading accounts about the making of Caligari is that Every single person who worked on the film told contradictory stories about what it was like to make the film and what they were going for. Since we're talking about the early history of cinema, most of the people who were there were not under the impression that they were making lasting art, that people were going to care about generations later. Only afterwards did people approach film as an important artistic medium that was worthy of critical appraisal, like, say, older things like theater or painting or the like. Like, I think a modern-day parallel would be something like video games, which, within the past 10-15 years, we've had preservationists trying to keep it as a lasting element of our artistic history. And I don't think anyone who worked on Pac-Man in the 80s were like, we're making art. No. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like that. Through Fritz Lang, Yanowitz and Mayer were introduced to Decla production head Eric Palmer. He bought the script since he felt that it could be developed cheaply. Lang briefly considered directing, but instead helmed the spiders. Uh, Robert Vine was brought in later on. There is some contention about the story's framing device. It's been speculated, through accounts by Yanovitz himself decades later, that the framing device was added by Palmer in order to undermine the anti-authoritarian bent of the main story, and that the film was just intended to be... Caligari using Caesar to murder people and hiding behind his uh, authority position at the asylum. Lang occasionally claimed to have devised the framing of device himself while he was still involved in the film, although this, this has been disputed as well. This was undercut in the 1950s when Werner Krauss revealed that he still had his copy of the script and is the only one that has survived to, uh, to the present day. He refused to release it to the public, but it was acquired by archivists in 1978, about two decades after Krauss died, and finally made public in 1995. This draft did have a framing device, but it opens with Francis and Jane at a party telling their guests about a terrifying event from their youth. 
Now, some claim that this original framing device undermines the anti-authoritarian theory of the story's conception, according to Yanowitz. Others say that this is still inconclusive because, you know, it's still pretty different from the twist ending where it turns out that Francis was crazy all along. All right, for the production of this film, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari features fantastic graphic visuals and handmade, deliberately fabricated sets. Light sources were painted onto canvases in the background rather than genuinely lit. The sets and costumes were made in about two weeks. As I mentioned earlier, much of this was done for practical budgetary reasons. They didn't have the resources in order to get outside shooting permits, so they built everything on interior sound stages, and electricity was strictly rationed in post-war Germany, so in order to have dramatic lighting, they had to paint the canvas in the background and hope people didn't notice. I made my, my little goth hurt sing. <laughs> yeah, this film is goth about 60 years, 70 years before it was cool to be that way. <laughs> that brings me to expressionism and how it was used to wallpaper over the low budget. We've talked about expressionist films in previous episodes of the series. Uh, I did Metropolis with Rachel, with Cheryl. I talked about uh, Waxworks, which used very similar looking sets, as well as two of the main actors from Caligari. I'm going to be honest, Waxworks this movie did not. This movie was gorgeous. <laughs> I touched upon what expressionism meant in those episodes, but I, I wanted to wait until I did Caligari to go a little deeper into it. So, yeah, after the advent of cheap photography, the art world struggled to find a new purpose. Since photos could replicate people and landscapes more accurately than any painter could, a number of artists began exploring other roles for painting. Notably, post-impressionist painter uh, Vincent van Gogh used distorted perspectives and exaggerated color choices to render an interpretation of the world through his own perspective. Inspired by Van Gogh, the writings of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, and the philosophies of Karl Marx, German expressionists like uh, Kirchner, Otto Müller, Emil Nolde, and uh, Carl Schmidt Rotloff began painting subjective images that reflected moods, ideas, and emotional experiences instead of physical reality. None of them had much formal painting experience. They were architectural students for the most part. Expressionism also influenced artists like Edvard Munch, uh, Wassily Kandinsky, and Gustav Klimt. It also touched mediums like poetry, music, architecture, fashion, and eventually film. Yeah, Caligari uses many expressionistic touches to tell its stories. Camera angles reflect the emotional underpinnings of a scene rather than just being stationary cameras placed in front of the action, just like you're just parking a tripod in front of a theater performance and just walking away. They started getting a little more subjective. However, that was also due to budgetary concerns, uh, at least partially, because those sets were so small, they had a hard time fitting the camera in the room. They're just like, you know what? Let's put it in this little corner over here and have it, like, look up at the guy, and that'll mean something. We can say it's <laughs> art. <laughs> Lots of examples are also in the handful of instances where they could use actual lighting, because it's a bit too convenient for a villain to be menacingly backlit the moment he reveals his wicked intentions, but this adds heft to a scene so long as the audience is willing to suspend disbelief for it. No shortage of horror movies use pronounced stylistic effects to make up for budget shortcomings. This might be the most lasting influence of Caligari in general. I can't even number the, the horror movies that use, like, say, 
really arbitrary bright lighting fixtures in order to be like hey this is colorful and wild please don't notice that this is made for like four dollars <laughs> caligari's expressionistic techniques might be its most lasting ripple hollywood appropriated german expressionism in the 1930s for its horror movies and film noir productions most notably todd browning's dracula just lifts scenes wholesale from nosferatu and it does reach beyond that. Hallmark Christmas movies use techniques popularized in German Expressionism. Yoga commercials use techniques popularized in German Expressionism. You could argue that German Expressionism is the moment when cinema started to break away from theater and started forming a language of its own. But with that bit out of the way, let's start talking about the cast. First off, Werner Krauss is Caligari himself. This part was written with Krauss in mind, and Krauss was super enthusiastic about it. He brought his own top hat, cane, and walking stick. That's so sweet, though. I wonder if you think those were his own gloves, too. I believe those were his own gloves, and you're like, he's wearing Mickey Mouse gloves. It's totally Mickey Mouse gloves. <laughs> this is eight years before Mickey Mouse. They're minstrel show gloves. I genuinely had no idea. I thought that, like, the lines were just supposed to imply that, like, you know, oh, there's bones and knuckles. I didn't know that was a fashion statement. Krauss was one of the actors here who had experience in expressionistic theater productions, and he plays into it. He exaggerates all his body movements. He's really hamming it up for the camera. He had input into how his own makeup was done, and it made his cheeks look all hollow. For a moment, you didn't quite recognize that it was Krauss and the uh, it was all a dream part because he didn't have that sallow complexion anymore. He just looked like a random middle-aged man. Well, that, like, suddenly he was, like, not, like, Danny DeVito as the penguin. He was suddenly, like, standing up with, like, decent posture. He looked like a sack of flour falling over. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. Danny DeVito in Batman Returns, his costume was modeled after Caligari. I'm sure that... <laughs> Yeah, Tim Burton's a big German Expressionism fan. I'm sure that's a shock to you. The whole movie, I was just like, is this what Tim Burton sees when he dreams? <laughs> is this just in his head? Moving on, Conrad Veidt as Caesar. Janowitz wanted his friend Ernst Deutsch to play the part, but he wasn't available, so he had to settle for Veidt. But Veidt was also super enthusiastic about this because he had background in expressionist theater and was also an interpretive dancer, which is not surprising when you see his little sleepwalking down moves. <laughs> Robert Spears. Yeah. <laughs> Vite was also super excited about his makeup and consulted on it himself. He he wanted his little goth baby lipstick and eyeshadow, especially for that close-up where he slowly opened his eyes, which is one of the most iconic shots in the film. Reportedly, women fainted when they first saw that scene because Caligari was one of the first movies to have close-ups. Oh, that's why they fainted? Well, that might just be the hype machine, but yeah. Uh, If you were to believe movies from that time period, women fainted from, like, slight breezes, so... (laughs) Yeah, don't see this scary movie because women faint in it. That was a marketing scheme and so many things. Uh, next up, Lil Dagover as Jane. As I mentioned earlier, the part was written for Gilda Langer, but she wasn't interested. Dagover had little understanding of expressionism and tried to play her part naturalistically, with very little exaggeration. Yep. It's easy to breeze past her. The only part is like towards the end where we're back in the real world and Francis is the inmate and he tries to approach Jane, who he believes is his fiance, and she just brushes him off because she thinks she's the queen of the sun, as <laughs> Cheryl put it. And her shutdown line was, we queens are forbidden from listening to our own hearts. 
which is the best way to be like, no, I'm not married. I'm going to like it. If anyone ever tries to put, I'm not going to say I'm married already. I'm going to be like, sorry, but queens like me are forbidden. So <laughs> we cannot listen to our own hearts. And then we had Friedrich Fair as Francis. Fair did act throughout the Weimar Germany Expressionist period, but he is best known as a director. And after he fled Nazi Germany to the United States because he's Jewish, he spent most of the rest of his career as a director. Actually, I think he fled to England and then maybe later on America. Later that same year, he directed the Expressionist film The House Without Windows, although that film has been lost. Cheryl has found this lost expression is classic. It turns out it's Plato's cave. <laughs> Fair had an ex- expressionist background as well, but he does not chew nearly as much scenery as Viter Krauss. Whenever somebody talks about the acting in Caligari, it's usually those two guys, which is weird because Fair gets a lot of screen time. Yeah, he's running around worried for most of this film. <laughs> it's true, but like, I don't know. Alan stole my heart. Poor Alan. Speaking of which, Hans Heinrich von Twardowski, who is Alan. This is the very (laughs) first movie he was ever in, but he appeared in at least 20 other Expressionist films. He also had to flee Germany in the 1930s because he was gay. He settled in the United States and kept acting. You might notice him in his minor uncredited role opposite Veidt in Casablanca. He's one of the minor Nazi stormtroopers that Veidt is barking orders to. Veidt's the lead Nazi in Casablanca. Um, so, like, through time, he and I have never seen Casablanca. I do want to do an episode down the road on Casablanca with somebody who's never seen it, but, yeah, Sarah hasn't seen it either. It's on the list. I definitely want to see it. Yeah, the release of the film, Caligari, was heavily marketed as a normal commercial property. It premiered less than a month after its completion. Rumor has it that the film was met with derisive jeers and demands for refunds, and that it was pulled after two screenings. Palmer then spent three months marketing Caligari as an art film, releasing it after six months to universal acclaim. This account is also disputed. Caligari was possibly a success from its opening day onwards, and Palmer made up that story in order to make himself seem like the hero of the movie. (laughs) The film was premiered in the United States at the Capitol Theater in New York City on April 3rd, 1921. There was a live theatrical prologue and epilogue where the old man from the framing device came up and introduced the film. And after the film concluded... He returned to the stage and informed the audience that Francis was cured of his hallucinations. Caligari's L.A. premiere was protested by the Hollywood branch of the American Legion. Contrary to certain reports, this wasn't due to any of the content of Caligari itself, but rather that the industry itself was fearful that imported German silent films threatened the American film industry. 1920s box office data is scant, but Caligari generally performed well in major cities from what we can tell and had little impact in rural communities or small towns. Get out of town. (laughs) Don't say. Well, no, don't get out of town. Don't be in the big cities, in the big towns. There are many attempts to do sequels or remakes of this film. Janowitz himself tried to make a sound film about a decade later, but it never quite came together. Uh, Amongst its other innovations in the history of horror films, Caligari is one of the first horror movies to get a shitty remake. It was made in the United States in 1962 and was written by Robert Block of Psycho fame. Block didn't intend to write a Caligari remake, but director Robert Kay decided to take Block's untitled screenplay and slap Caligari on top of it. The resulting film 
had almost nothing to do with the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, except it has a vaguely similar ending. Sounds Hollywood. (laughs) The film has been referenced constantly. I mentioned earlier, Caligari gets a shout out in Band of the Paradise. First thing Pete noted is that Rob Zombie's music video for Living Dead Girls, essentially a five minute remake of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari with Rob Zombie as Caligari. And what is it? Sherry Moon Zombie? Is that her name? That's her name. Yeah, yeah. She's Caesar. Yeah, full disclosure. That's what got me into watching this movie. I'm like, wait. That's Living Dead Girl. I know this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now it's time to discuss themes. First thing I want to bring up is authority and conformity. While, once again, it's been disputed whether or not the writers had intended Caligari to be an anti-authority film, I think that's more interesting to discuss in terms of authorial intent, but doesn't necessarily mean that you can or cannot read the film in that way. Uh, I'm usually a proponent of Death of the Author. Historians have largely settled on World War I being a pointless, bloody conflict where millions of young men were thoughtlessly fed to a meat grinder in order to fatten the bank accounts and sate the fevered egos of a handful of plutocrats. Many, especially those in artistic communities, questioned the status of the titled gentry in the aftermath of the war, especially since, and this is a massive understatement, many seemingly untouchable societal institutions collapsed over the course of World War I, such as, say, the entire government of Russia. So this led to lots of reactions and meditations about impermanence and how we shouldn't quite trust somebody just because they were born into an aristocratic family, which had occurred in previous eras, but were brought to the forefront by this then unprecedented conflict. While we were watching this film, Pete made a sarcastic rejoinder about asking Caesar whether that great war is going to be the last time. Is it actually going to be the war to end all wars? (laughs) And no, it's not. Yeah, one of Expressionism's cousins that came about in the immediate aftermath of World War One, as opposed to Expressionism was a couple of years beforehand, was Dada, which is sort of like Impressionism since it's an inherently subjective form of art, but is largely built upon the farce of trying to find meaning in an absurd universe. Because if World War One happened and all of that shit happened and all of the people died for arbitrary, pointless reasons, completely at the behest of a handful of wealthy guys in an ivory tower completely divorced from the real world in any capacity, well then nothing makes sense anymore, does it? Um, they're sarcastic foxes, what? Wonderful. <laughs> and frankly, every couple of years, I look at something in the news and it's like, yeah, they're they're, they're right. They're more right than they were when they were alive. Uh, yeah, the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was the meditations upon point of view and the perception of reality. As I mentioned before, Caligari might be the first movie with a twist ending. I say might because, as I appear to be legally obligated to point out every time I cover a silent film on this show, at least 80% of all silent films, or 80% of all movies before 1929, are completely lost. So I cannot authoritatively state that Caligari is the first movie with a twist ending, but it's the first that we know about. And I think Caligari, at least indirectly, is talking about how objectivity isn't quite possible. Because while it isn't tough to see the twist ending coming after over a century of film history, I can't rule out that people might have been surprised that it turns out that Francis was hallucinating things all along. Perhaps people were shocked by it. I couldn't find any information that confirmed or denied this because nothing about Caligari can be stated without somebody else saying the exact opposite thing. (laughs) Like trying to get the truth 
The oral history of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is essentially a Rashomon play. <laughs> but Caligari is, in its way, existing to uh, point out that film is inherently manipulative. Most German films up to 1920 were overt propaganda, as I mentioned before. That's what Ufa did. Film is a magic trick. It is trying to trick you. This film, Dr. Caligari, is deliberately pointing out the fake sets and the paint drying. And they're stepping on that painted path. And hey, he's leaving footprints behind. That's not a real street. In a way, it's a postmodern commentary upon its own artifice. Which you yourself pointed out, Cheryl. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's just a very pretty way of saying that. But it's all distracted by the visuals. <laughs> Yes, maybe I'm being a bit too florid. That's that's what happens when I get to write little notes beforehand. I get to practice. <laughs> no, it's nice. I really like it. It's very beautiful. I, I understand why you have this <laughs> The last theme on my list is duality, which is sort of related to the point of view and perception of reality. A lot of characters in the film are playing two parts, especially in the framing device. But even beyond that, you know, like Caesar and his little dummy. We watched the house all night. We know he was there. Lying on his stomach with his head up facing the ceiling. (laughs) Very limber. Good to know that police were just as useless back then as they are now. I mean, it doesn't help that they actually look like Keystone cops. (laughs) And mustaches. Oh my goodness, that man whose mustache was like below his chin. Yeah, speaking of artifice, they were not pretending that that mustache was his real mustache. It was a completely different color from the rest of his hair, and it's a black and white film with color tinting, so like it has to be that fake for the cameras to pick it up. It was wonderful. Okay, that's more or less my notes on it. Is there anything else that you would like to add about Caligari before we wrap things up? Oh, I mean, I know it, it's good to now know the full plot of that Rob Zombie music video. Mm. I didn't before. <laughs> there, I, I mean, we can't end the episode without mentioning the slide. Oh, yeah. When, when Caesar is being chased across the rooftops, there's one rooftop that it, it looks like a children's slide. And Pete was very disappointed that nobody slid down it. They walk up and down that one particular set like six times in the movie and nobody slides down it. Uh, Yeah, one thing that just popped into my mind, getting things back to the intro, because it's always a nice way to uh, end things the way you started. Do you think that you could conceivably argue that The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the first true horror film, whatever true means? Oh, everybody's looking at me. Okay, cool. Um, (laughs) Sure. It's certainly one of the oldest ones I've seen. Well, a couple of uh, months ago, you did Inferno with me. I think you can credibly argue Inferno was a horror movie. I don't know. Isn't that scary though? There are very easy rules to follow. I also don't think Hellraiser is a horror movie though. <laughs> you really don't like Hellraiser. <laughs> the only scary part of that movie is when Jesus falls out of the closet. <laughs> Pete, do you think the cabinet of Dr. Caligari could be credibly argued as the first true horror movie? Mm, I think it could be argued, although I tend to hate definite answers like that, and I also follow your camp of, we gotta put a disclaimer on, so many movies are lost to time, so we just have no idea what the actual answer is, but if we had to only go with movies that are historically saved, perhaps it is. So can we agree that it's a horror movie? I would definitely say it is a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard to look at this and not see every other horror movie that ripped it off, which is most horror movies. Nope. I can also easily see, like, 
like Sora, Donald, and Goofy just like traipsing through the background. We're going to Caligari World. <laughs> <laughs> Unlock it with the key. There were no doorknobs. They're locked. <laughs> Personally, I'm on the same page as Pete. I think that it's tough to argue Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the first true horror movie. I think you can make a case for Inferno. I think a lot of those Melies trick photography films, including some of the other ones that are taking a page from Melies, could be argued. Those Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde silent films, there were a couple after the lost one. The Edison Frankenstein. Okay, and on that note, I think that's one more episode in the can. Thanks for listening to everybody. Everybody, We will see you next time.